We're going to take our reading from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 27, and beginning to read at verse 45. Matthew chapter 27, beginning to read at verse 45. We're just going to look at one verse of that later on, the, the first verse, verse 45. Let's hear the Word of God. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again, in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They'd followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Pray God will bless his word to our hearts and to our minds. I can just take a moment before we look into our passage. There, there's a powerful question, isn't there, in, in that hymn. What kind of love is this? Uh, and it may be that you are relatively a, a stranger to Christian things, to the gospel, God invites you to share in the most amazing love. It, it may be that for whatever reason, you never really knew the, uh, the love of, of a caring father. God invites you to know him as he, uh, the perfect father, the caring, loving, compassionate father. It may be for, for some reason you, you've uh, never been or, or you've had an unhappy experience or, or, or no experience at all of being involved in a family. God invites you to be part of His family, to have brothers and sisters, spiritually speaking, everywhere you go. It may be that, that you've never had the, the joy of, of a loving marriage and Christ invites you to be His bride. What kind of love is this? It's the most amazing love ever. How did it come about? 
Let's turn to our passage. It's a very short text. There was darkness from noon until three in the afternoon. Darkness came over all the land. I guess all of us are familiar with bookends. Uh, we know what bookends are for. Um, it's to stop the books falling off the shelves in two directions. Um, very simple things. Um, God seems incredibly fond of bookends. Um, if you compare the early chapters of Genesis with the final chapters of Revelation, you'll find they're bookends. There are themes in the one that are repeated in the other. Um, a great way of beginning to understand the meaning, say, of one of Paul's letters is to read the beginning and read the end because they're bookends. Uh, and almost always the themes of the, the book are there. Uh, and I don't know whether you've ever noticed, but the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus is bracketed by cosmic bookends. The beginning is marked by the star, not just any star, because no star travels and then stops. But this star did. And it's bookmarked at the other end, at the moment of Christ's death, by this three-hour darkness. That is not an eclipse. That is a supernatural, cosmic event. Uh, and each one of them is pointing to a truth. The, the star at the beginning of, of his, his earthly ministry, at the beginning of his life, uh, his incarnation, is to remind us, as John tells us, that light was coming into the world. The darkness now also takes place in order to draw our attention to something very, very real. Darkness, firstly, is associated in Scripture with critical salvation events. In Exodus chapter 10, you find one of those powerful, evocative phrases that you, you find throughout the Bible. One of the, the plagues is that there was darkness over the land of Egypt, and then the description of it kind of sends a shiver down your spine. It says, a darkness that could be felt. That, that's evocative, isn't it? A darkness that could be felt. The psalmist reflecting on it says, he sent darkness, he made the land dark. There's darkness at Sinai when the law is being given. Exodus 20, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The law was going to be given. God was going to impress upon his people who they must be to be his people, what it meant to be different from all the nations in the earth. And one of the things they needed to understand by that was the nature of God himself, that this was the God who had said to Moses earlier, take your shoes off your feet, for the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. And the writer to the Hebrews, later contrasting 
the, the exodus and the giving of the law uh, and all that went with that, with the gospel uh, and all that comes with that, says this, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. He says, that's, that's Sinai, that's the law, that's the Old Testament. Uh, and he goes on to say to them, um, but you've come to a festive gathering of angels um, in holy assembly. And at the moment Jesus dies, for three hours, there's darkness over the whole land. Critical moments in the salvation story, exodus which forms the backdrop for Passover, which is the, the background to the communion service we've just shared in. Sinai and the law, obey and live. But you cannot obey, so you cannot live. So there must be the sacrificial side of the law, the, the lambs without spot and without blemish that will be sacrificed, the endless shedding of blood because it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can truly take away sin. All they can do is be signposts saying, this way, this way, until John comes and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It has a figurative use as well. It's not just a, a physical thing. It's a, it's a figurative thing. It's a description of evil. It, it's, it's almost a synonym for evil. Let me just give you some, some examples of this. Luke chapter 22. Jesus talking to his opponent says, This is your hour and the power of darkness. Or, or in Ephesians 6, um, Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. He uses a very similar expression in Colossians, talking of the domain of darkness. Uh, and in Thessalonians, where he is contrasting believers with the world, he says, you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you're all children of the light, children of the day. We're not of the night, nor of the darkness. He's saying if you're a Christian, then darkness is not your domain. You belong in the light. Get into the light and enjoy the light. The light who is Christ. It's descriptive of judgment. And there is much about judgment in the Scriptures, both in the Old and in the New Testaments. And Calvary is about judgment, isn't it? It is Christ as our representative, facing the judgment of God. And because He is now the sin-bearer, the, the judgment of God is that the sinner shall die, or the sin-bearer shall die. And so, God turns his face aside and there is the, the dereliction and, uh, and he became sin for us who knew no sin. But it's described again and again in Scripture in terms of, of judgment, in terms of darkness. They will look to the earth, says Isaiah in chapter 8. But behold, distress and darkness and gloom and anguish, they will be thrust into thick darkness. Jeremiah says, the heavens above will be dark 
for I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, I will not turn back. Judgment is coming and you cannot avoid it. A little later, Jeremiah says, He brings darkness before your feet. Stumble on the twilight mountains while you look for light. He turns it into gloom and makes it into darkness. Because of their pride, because of their wickedness, because they will not listen to God or hearken to His voice, Jeremiah says, the very light will become darkness to you. Jeremiah talking of himself, says, I am a man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into the darkness without any light. But is that just Jeremiah? Or, or is that an allusion again to Christ and to the crucifixion and to those hours of darkness where he who is the light of the world is driven by God into darkness and there is no light? His father has forsaken him. The people, ever optimistic, seldom realistic, believing that it'll all be okay in the end, are looking forward in the Old Testament to the day of the Lord. Won't it be wonderful? They're, they're so typical of, of so many people um, in the world today who live lives without God without reference to God, with, with no concern for the things of God, flouting the commandments of God. And then at the end of their lives, they have a, a lively expectation that they will spend eternity in the presence of God. And somehow, the things that they have hated in this world, they will love in heaven. It'll all be wonderful. And Amos and others address people like that, and they say, why do you desire the day of the Lord? Why would you have the day of the Lord? For you, it's darkness, not light. To come into the presence of a holy God without your sins forgiven is darkness, not light. And Jesus says that his own coming will be, uh, again, there will be that bookend. There will be days of tribulation and the sun will be darkened. But not just in terms of general judgment. Darkness is, is spoken of in Scripture as a, a very real picture of one of the aspects of, of hell. And the Bible does teach about hell. And don't let anybody say to you, oh, hell, that's kind of an Old Testament concept. It's not there in the New. The one who talks most about hell in Scripture is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it becomes one of the pictures of hell. If a person lives many days, let him rejoice in them. But let him remember, says the writer of Ecclesiastes, that the days of darkness will be many. Yeah, you can live your life however you want to in this world, uh, and you can seem to escape any sense of, of, of moral retribution or judgment, uh, and you often have people throwing this at you, don't they? Well, if there's a just God, why, why? Uh, do, do all of these terrible atrocities go unpunished? Why do wicked people prosper? And the writer to the Ecclesiastes says, don't be foolish. Don't think God pays all of his debts in this present world. There is judgment to come. Those that refuse the wedding invitation in, in Matthew's Gospel, in the parables of Jesus, are cast into outer darkness. Um, 
The, the worthless servant is cast into outer darkness. In Revelation, um, its kingdom is plunged into darkness. It's a symbol of judgment, and it's a symbol of hell. So, what's happening in Jerusalem as we look at the events that are going on against this backdrop of there being darkness for three hours? Well, it starts earlier, doesn't it? It starts around the Lord's table when John just adds a little comment. He speaks of Judas, who has now basically revealed himself as the one who is going to betray. Um, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Nobody knows who it's going to be. They're all saying, is it me? Is it me? Nobody points a finger and says, I knew it would be Judas. I knew it would be him. No. But Jesus says, the one to whom I give the morsel, uh, and he hands it to to. Uh, Judas, and he tells him what he needs to do, he needs to do quickly. Uh, and having received the morsel of bread, says uh, John, he immediately went out. And then John adds, in our English versions, four words, and it was night. You can take that as simply a reference to the time of day, but I think John is saying something much more than that. Because we know what will happen to Judas. He will go out into the night. He will betray his Savior. And then he will be so consumed with a remorse without a repentance. That, that adding to the sin of betraying the Savior, he will add the sin of suicide. He, he cannot bear to hold the money that he's been given uh, and he's a thief. That's why he betrayed Jesus. It was for money. He was a thief. He'd been dipping into the common bag. But now he's filled with remorse. He's like Esau, who, who is so deeply saddened but finds no place of repentance because repentance and sadness are not the same thing. Repentance always includes sadness, but it's more than that. It, it, it's a God-given ability to turn around and go in the opposite direction. Esau never found that repentance. Judas does not find it. And so he goes out and he kills himself. As Jesus is hanging on that cross, it looks as if the powers of darkness have won. If ever you're tempted to think in kind of Star Wars terms, of, of good and evil being opposite sides of some somehow equal force, the good side and the dark side. Just remember this. It is Satan who puts it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. It, it is Satan who engineers, humanly speaking, the, the, the death of Jesus and one of the, the great Puritan theologians, John Owen, wrote a, a brilliant piece which he calls thus, the death of death in the death of Christ. Satan engineers his own destruction because by death opening its mouth to swallow the Lord Jesus Christ, it destroys itself. When he who knows no sin 
pays the price of sin, the power of sin is broken forever. The power of darkness is broken forever. The way into the presence of God is made open. Everything that Satan loathes and hates, he actually conspires to bring to an end because he does not understand the Scriptures. He knew Isaiah 53, but he doesn't see it. He knows the other scriptures. He knows um, all of the, the scriptures that relate to the coming, to the life, to the resurrection, to the glorification of Jesus. And he doesn't understand one of them because his own mind is darkened. He is not omniscient like God. Neither is he omnipresent like God. And he is defeated utterly and completely at the cross. But the disciples are still in darkness on the beginning of Easter morning. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And spiritually speaking, they're still in the dark, aren't they? Mary comes uh, and she's looking for a body. The other women come, they're looking for a, for a body. Peter and John run to the tomb because they think, well, this is an old women's tale. You know, they're, 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 there's a body there. They just haven't seen it and they find nobody. The disciples on the road to Emmaus said, oh, we had hoped. They're still in darkness. Thomas, who's missing on that first Easter evening, says, I, I can't believe it. I don't believe it. Unless I put my finger into the nail prints and thrust my hand into his side, I won't believe. Jesus, by Easter morning, is risen. But his Disciples are still in darkness. Sadly, there are people who 2,000 years after Jesus rose are still in darkness because they haven't embraced the truth that Christ is alive. They're still seeking the living among the dead. They're looking for a religion of works. They're looking for things that they can do to please God. They're looking for ways in which they can deal with their own sin. Christ has dealt with it for you. You do not need to deal with it. So what should our response be just as we close? Well, remember it was all to do with light and darkness that Jesus came. John chapter 1 verses 4 and 5. In him was life, says John at the beginning of his gospel. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And then you've got umpteen different translations. The darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not quenched it. The darkness has not comprehended it. The, the Greek word there is capable of all of those different translations. But they all amount to the same thing. Jesus came into this world so that you and I do not need to live our lives in darkness. He is the light of the world. And, and if our Lives are anchored to his life. We will live in perpetual light. There will be no fear. There will be no judgment. Uh, there will be none of the, the, the figurative fulfillments of darkness. Hell will have nothing to do with us because there will be no condemnation for us. Judgment will, will have nothing to do with us because Christ has died. And if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us. So firstly, understand that to bring an end to darkness and to bring light was why Jesus came. Secondly, it was because of darkness that he was rejected. 
This is judgment, says John. Chapter 3, verse 19. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. There's a relationship, isn't there, between darkness and sin. People tend not to do the most wicked things in the bright sunshine. They tend to do them in corners. They tend to do them secretly. They, they tend to do them under the shadow of darkness. You must either choose darkness or choose life. Christ does not dwell in darkness. And if you love darkness more than light, then both in this world and in the world to come, light will not be your portion. But there's a promise. Still John's Gospel, John 8 and verse 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Notice that one word, whoever. Whoever. I remember standing here, I don't know how many years ago now, it must have been at least 20 years ago, it was probably more like 30 years ago, uh, and, and speaking on that text and saying, whoever, whoever, uh, and somebody uh, sat out in, in the back there, spoke to me afterwards, and they said, ah, but you don't know what I've done. And I said, no, I don't, that's why God said whoever. And they said, ah, but I, I've done things that, that, that nobody knows I've done. I said, but God knows you've done them. And he says, whoever, whoever. Whoever, whoever comes to me, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. The, the reason God gives that kind of embracive thing, the, the, the verse in John, 1 John I just quoted, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Wouldn't it be terrible if, as an appendix to the Bible, there was a list of the sins that could be forgiven. Firstly, it would be so long that our Bibles would be too heavy to carry to church. Um, and it would take us a lifetime to read them. And, and undoubtedly, we'd find something that wasn't there and we'd say, oh, woe is me, I am undone. But God says, no, all sin, whoever. And there's a man who escaped darkness and stands in a, in a beautiful contrast to Judas. He's called Nicodemus. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, and no one can do these signs, and you, you know how the story unfolds. We'll be looking at it on a Sunday morning in a, in a couple of weeks' time. He comes by night. Why? Probably because he doesn't want to be seen as an important member of the, the Jewish kind of ruling class. Doesn't want to be seen talking to this dubious rabbi from Nazareth. But he's, he's, he needs to know, how can I be right with God? And Jesus tells him, you must be born again. But he's also saying to him, you can be born again. There's a possible future. Still John's Gospel, John 11, 9. There are 12 hours in the day, says Jesus. And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But how do you, how do you come to that? How do you come to that? John 12, last verse. Jesus says, I've come into the world as light 
so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If that's where you feel you are this morning, that there's a darkness in your life, there's, there's a fear of death, there's a fear of judgment, there's, there, there's a fear of, of, of what may happen in the future. Whoever believes in Jesus doesn't remain in darkness. The invitation of the gospel, the invitation of Good Friday is step into the light. God is there. God is ready to receive you. Jesus has dealt with the problem, which is your sin. If you put your faith and trust him, if you repent and believe, then, well, this is Good Friday, isn't it? There's Easter. We're waiting for Easter. Wouldn't it be tremendous if you came into this church this morning in darkness, but you came in on Sunday in the light of the gospel, in the light of God's forgiveness, in the knowledge that Christ was now your Savior and your Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that there are such sharp contrasts in Scripture. There is truth and error. There is light and darkness. There is life and death. There is heaven and hell. But we thank you that there is a way to leave death, to leave darkness, to avoid hell, to know what it is to have forgiveness of sins, to know what it is to dwell in the light, and to know what it is to have a sure and certain hope of heaven to come through faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grant that faith to any who are seeking you. Fulfill your promise that those that seek will find, that those that knock will have the door open to them, that those that ask will receive. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.